lot of these hotel REITs and hospitality companies aren't necessarily trading for extreme valuations. They're still beaten down. A lot of them have, you know, they slashed their dividend a couple years ago, have not brought that dividend back, and can kind of be had for pretty reasonable valuations. And then you're talking about maybe having record results in the second half of this year. So maybe I'm burying the lead here, but I do think um, maybe that, you know, the overall theme of this conversation we're having is that there's probably opportunities for investors in the industry. I'm Chris Hill, and that was Matt Argusinger, lead investor from Million Acres, The Motley Fool's real estate investing service. On today's show, we're diving into hospitality. Deidre Woolard talks with Matt about the travel trends that are surging back and the companies that may stand to benefit. They also discuss how resorts are recovering and why the future for business travel is a mixed bag. I don't know about you, Matt, but it feels like all my friends are going somewhere really exciting this year. What are you seeing? Well, I am also going somewhere really exciting, Deidre. I am going to Europe myself nice. to uh, uh, do some hiking around Mount Blanc in uh, Switzerland, uh, Italy, and France. So, yes, people are traveling, including me, including your friends, uh, and it's, you're seeing it anecdotally. You're seeing it in the data, though, as well. And I think this is the result of us uh, as Americans, but around people around the world being cooped up really for the last couple of years putting off so many things, putting off travel, putting off big family events, weddings, uh, companies putting off travel. And we finally are at a point, knock on wood, where we're probably past the worst of the pandemic. doesn't feel like we're going to get another big wave. And a lot of the restrictions that we had in place as recently as a few months ago in a lot of places have been lifted. Masks are no longer required um, you know, on air, airplanes, uh, so that's made a lot of people more comfortable. And so, if you start looking into the data that we've been getting so far this year, um, and I know you're going to present some data later in the show, but you're seeing really almost record hotel rates, record airfares, um, big year-over-year increases, but also, you know, amazingly, prices that are now above 2019 levels, pre-pandemic levels. And to me, it's it's really it's a demand story. You know, those COVID restrictions are gone; they've been removed. Masks are optional. People are feeling more comfortable uh, booking travel. I think the trend only strengthens as we get into the summer, and it's really not just a domestic story either. You know, I was listening to the conference call for Sun Communities, which is a uh, not really a travel company. It's but they they don't, they're the kind of the leading RV REIT. They do manufactured homes and RVs. And they noted that a lot of their RV parks are seeing big surges in travelers coming from Canada. So I think we're also kind of underestimating the potential international story here as, as borders reopen. Uh, you know, there's a lot of pent up demand for foreign travelers to the US as well. And that's going to that's gonna boost a lot of the uh, hotels and um, hospitality related businesses around the country. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I've been studying the TSA throughput numbers too, and it's great to see them now consistently up around uh, up and over two million. That was not happening for a long time during the pandemic, so people are absolutely flying through our airports. The other thing I'm really following is. Airbnb versus hotels. So there's this kind of narrative where people are like, I'm an Airbnb person or I'm a hotel person. But I'm really noticing that people are kind of both. And our friend Matt Frankel talked about this recently about like if you're traveling maybe with your spouse, you maybe are opting for the hotel experience. If you're traveling with family, maybe that's the time to do Airbnb. What do you think about the kind of optionality in travel that we have today that we didn't used to have kind of before Airbnb? 
Well, I love it. I mean, I love what Airbnb's brought to the market because I think more consumer choice is always better. The fact that you now, if you're traveling to a city or a particular destination, not only do you have just the hotels in the market to choose from, you potentially have dozens, if not hundreds, of listings on Airbnb or VRBO, people who are just renting out rooms, houses uh, that you can rent and, and book and have a really unique experience as you travel. So I view Airbnb you know, as kind of this really disruptive force because it's, a, it's an entrance to the market. It gives consumers more choices. In a way, sometimes those choices or experiences can be superior to what's offered by you know, the hotels in any particular market. And there are experiences that you can have on Airbnb that you just can't get in a lot of places that a hotel can't replicate. That said, I, I also think a lot about this Airbnb versus hotel, and I, and I think most people will opt for both. But with, with the thing you don't get with Airbnb is standards. And what I mean by that is when it comes to the quality of any particular listing, um, property, the quality of the service, which there really isn't much service there, amenities, you know, it's really different from, from listing to listing, from host to host. And so, as more people resume travel, especially this summer, and especially families or business travelers, I don't think they're looking for surprises necessarily. I don't think they're looking for, um, you know, variability in what their experience is going to be. They're looking for standard qualities, standard amenities that really only to hotels can offer at scale. I think Airbnb also has this hidden fee challenge, and I'm not saying hotels don't have it, but it is really interesting. And I know this is it's kind of out there and it's it's buzzy, but you know, you'll book it, you'll see an Airbnb listing that you really love. It's it's a hundred dollars a night and you're thinking, wow, that's a that's a great deal, especially compared to the, the hotels in the city or the in the market where I'm booking. But all of a sudden you go to book that Airbnb and all of a sudden that hundred dollars becomes $150 or $180 because you have the cleaning fee, you've got the Airbnb fee, you've got um, you know any other assortment of special fees that the host is charging you for God knows what, and all of a sudden that $100 a night is is more than double. And there are also some taxes in there um, that I'll talk about in a second. So, as a long-term host uh, on the platform, uh, I see problems with that. I, I see problems with customer service as well on Airbnb. It's it's a major challenge. It often puts guests and hosts uh, in a position to resolve issues themselves, which isn't always healthy. So, you know, I think when most problems arise, if someone's traveling, they'd rather deal with the uh, you know the management of a hotel, whose purpose and incentive is to make things right, rather than the person they might be in direct conflict with. Um, and then cities, cities, city regulations um, are also making it much more challenging and expensive to be a host and to actually be a guest as well. Uh, for example, where I live in Washington, D.C., where I've, where I've done Airbnb in the past, several years ago, they started charging Airbnb travelers uh, the hotel rate taxes for stays below 90 days. That's a 14.5% tax rate. So imagine if you're a guest, you're booking at a place in D.C., you get the cleaning fee, you get the Airbnb fee, and all of a sudden you get this 14.5% um, hotel tax put on top of it. So makes it really expensive to travel, uh, makes, puts Airbnb much more in sort of the level of, of hotels. And then cities around the country are, are continually enacting um, new regulations because they, they often view Airbnb as reducing the affordable housing stock. Um, most cities, as we know, are really struggling with affordable housing. So Airbnb is viewed as a threat because it's taking long-term rentals away from the market that are being used for short-term rentals. So I'm very mixed on Airbnb. And on one side, I love the idea that there's more choice in the market. On the other side, I think there are a lot of problems with the business model and challenges that might not make it sort of the, the slam dunk business, uh, especially as we go on in sort of the post-COVID travel world. 
Yeah, there's there's so much you laid out there that I think is really interesting. On the cleaning fees, I think the other side of that too is what is required from the the guest when they leave. So there's a wide variety of things that are required from, you know, just stripping the bed or something like that to cleaning up certain things, uh, you know, maybe starting the laundry instead of just like stripping the bed. Very, very different than the hotel experience. And a lot of those stores are kind of, you, you mentioned kind of being buzzy. A lot of those stores are bubbling up on, on Twitter. Uh, one of our own analysts, uh, Bill Mann, was talking about that, uh, his experience with an uh, Airbnb when he was in Omaha for the Berkshire meeting. So this is really starting to become one of those public uh, awareness issues for Airbnb. The other thing that I always think about with Airbnb is there's always that wild card of these uh, party houses, things like that. They've done mm -hmm. a lot to get rid of that problem, uh, but we've we've all, it keeps coming up in the press, and I just think that is consistently a worry for them. I, I agree, and yeah, to, to Bill Mann's cleaning fee story, I'm sure it goes something like, "Wait a second, I'm paying 150 dollars." In a cleaning fee, but you expect me, you know, not only strip the beds, but I'm supposed to clean the kitchen, sweep the floors, scrub the bathrooms. Uh, so what am I actually paying for? <laughs> it's uh, it, it, I've seen that a lot. It's 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 certainly out there. It makes everything be such a, like like I said, such a varied experience to people. And you know, as they travel this summer, I think a lot of people are going to look for more standardized experiences. Which is great news for hotels. One of the things I watch is uh, STR data that comes from CoStar, and they recently put out their release of data through April 23rd. Occupancy, uh, pretty strong. It's at about 65.8%, down 4.2% from 2019, sort of pre-pandemic. Really interesting stuff. Average daily rate is up. You mentioned prices going up earlier. Uh, average daily rate of $148.35, up 15.4% from 2019. Uh, RevPAR, which is uh, revenue per available room, that's 97 point, uh, 90, over $97. That's up 10.5% uh, from 2019. It just seems like the hotel business is really coming back, and they're not having to offer the deals that they had to offer last year to, to get people to actually stay. Right. I mean, think about what you're what you just said. I mean, the average daily rate, revenue per available room, up double digits from 2019. That's that's incredible to me. I mean, here we are. We're just in the early part of 2022. We haven't even gotten to the this you know, really the, the heart of the hotel season, spring and summer here, and yet. They're reporting numbers that are exceeding pre-pandemic levels. I mean, that that's really, really impressive, um, and it speaks to to like you said, pricing power that they have in the market that they didn't have obviously in the last two years um, with COVID. Um, and what you're seeing is hotels now are more profitable. They're generating generating more revenue, more EBITDA, and they don't even have to have the same occupancy that they had back uh, pre-pandemic. Um, you know, occupancy's. Grow, it's it's rising and it's fine, but it's still below 2019. Yet they're still generating uh, meaningful revenues and profits. Um, and remember, these are these hotels are now just like I said, they're entering that busy spring and summer period. COVID-19 is more and more in the rearview mirror. Whether that's actually true from a health standpoint, let's hope so, but we don't know. But a lot of people really have just moved on and started to make their travel plans. I think that really bodes well for hotel revenue going forward. You know, and it wouldn't be it wouldn't surprise me at all to see many hotel REITs and hospitality companies um, start exceeding, start lapping their 2019 pre-pandemic financials at some point during the second half of the year. And Deidre, as we've talked about, 
a lot of these hotel REITs and hospitality companies aren't necessarily trading for extreme valuations. They're still beaten down. A lot of them have, you know, they slashed their dividend a couple years ago, have not brought that dividend back, and can kind of be had for pretty reasonable valuations. And then you're talking about maybe having record results in the second half of this year. So maybe I'm burying the lead here, but I do think um, maybe that, you know, the overall theme of this conversation we're having is that there's probably opportunities for investors in the industry. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that because in the beginning we saw the sort of leisure travel bounce back, and that was good for some of the uh, REITs we follow, like like a Ryman Hospitality Properties. They've got those larger resorts, but now we're starting to see urban travel come back a little bit. You know, people are going to, to Washington D.C., they're going to Boston, they're going back to New York. So is that that could be good news also for other types of hotel brands as well, right? Um, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think. We spent the last couple of years avoiding a lot of those places, right? But where where do people want to travel generally? You know, we, we talked a lot about people going, um, you know, to rural places, of course, uh, going out, going camping. I know the RV business has boomed over the last couple of years, but I do think, th- you know, the major cities, the major destinations of the country are going to see a huge pickup, a huge revival. I mean, places like Washington D.C., kind of where we live. I mean, you know, always a tourist mecca. People are going to be coming back to them. They already are. But places like New York City, Boston, um, those places, Las Vegas, which you know really struggled early on in COVID, that's had a huge revival. Places like Opryland in Nashville or Miami, Florida, or just the number of places that that are that's owned by Vail Resorts, for example. I mean, you can't really. Uh, what I love to say about Vail is you can't really build new mountains. So you know, Vail has some of the most unique hospitality assets on the planet. You got Vale, you got Breckenridge, you got Heavenly, Stowe. They um, they just made their first major international investment in a Swiss Alps resort. But these are all, I think, the premier places where people want to travel and they've been waiting to travel. And so I think those are the places that are probably going to benefit the most. Well, I want to talk about Las Vegas a little bit because that has been such a comeback story, and that is also the convention travel story, uh, in my opinion. It's a great, great place to sort of figure out what's happening with conventions. I looked at some Las Vegas uh, convention data, convention attendance. Get this, up over 2,000 percent from 2021. Now it's still down 40 percent or so from 2019. Hotel occupancy is still down a little bit, but people are going back to Vegas for conventions, and I think that's really interesting to see. I think we're going to see more of that. Uh, we had CES in January, not the usual like crazy consumer electronics show that we usually have, but really conventions are starting to come back. Absolutely, they're coming back, and I think this is where. You sort of your larger resort-style operators are really going to win. I think you like look at Ryman Hospitality or, or Vici Properties. You mentioned Vegas; they pretty much own Vegas now at this point after buying um, MGM Growth Properties. Uh, we talked about Vale already, but um, actually, I was I was at I was seeing at Stowe, Vermont, a couple months ago, which is a Vale resort uh, at their Spruce Peak Lodge there, and they were uh, it's, a, it's a major hotel, and they were actually hosting a big insurance company there for the week that we were there, um, having some events. And so, yeah, I think the the, the conferences are back. Um, if you look at uh, Ryman Hospitality and their Q1 results, they reported uh, advanced group bookings that actually exceeded levels in 2019. In other words, more large groups are booking uh, stays at Ryman's resorts than were back in 2019, and that's really across their portfolio. But like you mentioned, like CES, I mean, I think the big conventions, CES, E3, uh, Comic Con in San Diego, South by Southwest, I mean, they're always going to have a place. Um, people like Tony Robbins or, or Grant Cardone are always going to need 
big convention rooms with hundreds or thousands of seats where they can, you know, convince people to uh, how to change their life. I mean, the, the, those are out there. They're always going to be happening. And I, so at that at that side of the business, that's bouncing back. But I also think there's it's the smaller events as well. The the one the events that happen every day that of course are. are just a part of society, which are weddings, family reunions, class reunions, or uh, or state regional sports tournaments. These these have a place in the market as well, and they've they've also been delayed or canceled or put off for the last two years. And so those are all coming back in a big way. So it's not just about travel. You're right. It's it's about people getting together for large events or getting together for small events. And those events just haven't been able to happen. You need a space for those events and, and resorts and hospitality hotels and other places are, are, are ripe for those. The one spot that I worry about is, is business travel, not the big conventions, not even some, you know, corporate offsites, but the real, like the, the people that used to travel and just go one-to-one meeting clients and things like that. And that, you know, that's sort of your bread and butter hotel brands that really benefit from that. What do you think is going to happen there? Yeah, that's a that's a tricky one, Deidre. I I think business travel, as you just described it, where it's, you know, one to three colleagues going to visit, you know, a client or a supplier to negotiate a deal. I mean, it's going to come back to a certain extent, but it's it's so much of that now can be handled virtually. And it's not really just Zoom. You know, I think that's changed the game. I mean, you've got DocuSign, Adobe. The fact that legal contracts have you know become digital, and you know that's all contributed to the lesser need for traditional business travel. I think what what does come back, and it kind of hints at what we were talking about previously, but the idea of company offsites that are a little more akin to I know the convention event business, but I'm thinking more smaller group outings. You know, collaboration meetings where groups from companies can have strategic planning sessions that go over several days and and getting people together in rooms uh, in an offsite place can can really add some benefits i think that's going to come back and in a way that could even be bigger than it was uh, pre-pandemic because the office as we've talked about the office is in this really you know i don't know precarious situation when it, when it comes to most corporations we most corporations have not decided really what their long-term office strategy is i think we were convinced and I think the data shows is that office is probably not going to come back. Traditional office is not coming back to where it was pre-pandemic. Uh, certainly, companies aren't going to be leasing as much square foot as they had before, but there's still that need to get employees together now and then to foster the kind of creativity and collaboration that can happen when when there is there isn't an office. So, I think that's coming back, and that could be even better. So that's one other thing I think that that could come back. That also. It won't necessarily offset all that's lost from business travel, but I think that probably replaces a good chunk of it. Yeah, I think that's interesting, and it's again another uh, another vote for those sort of larger properties that are that are more distinctive, and you know, it's it's very akin to what we've seen in uh, in the office space where. Uh, Class A, really top tier properties, still doing well. The stuff that's sort of middle of the road, maybe not so much. And I think that that's middle of the road hospitality is a place that I think that's the place where the weakness is. Well, Matt, as we wrap up, what do you think people should be looking at to understand hospitality, kind of going forward as as we go into summer and beyond? Well, you know, as, as always, if you're an investor. I think follow the companies themselves. Follow the hospitality companies. Listen to their conference calls. Review their investor presentations. Um, you know, don't do a ton of work. But you know, companies like Pebblebrook, Hotel Trust, or Ryman Hospitality, they'll pre- periodically put out detailed updates on their operating trends. Pretty easy to digest. You know, I think if occupancy continues to trend higher, 
and hotels can hold on to those record ADRs that we talked about, the average daily rates, the, the next few quarters are going to be really good for the industry, maybe record profits. So you'll, you'll see record revenues, profits, big increases to dividends. Um, you know, companies like Pepperbrook, Ryman, I mean, Disney, we didn't talk about Disney, but Disney's a travel company as well, to a certain extent. They either drastically cut their dividends or slash them entirely when the pandemic struck. So more than anything else, I think higher dividend payouts will signal renewed confidence on the part of hotel executives that the pandemic era is officially over. So, you know, you can watch the stock prices, of course, but I think watch those dividends come back. And if they do, then I think management is saying, hey, our balance sheet's in good shape, businesses bounce back, we have a lot of confidence in the next few quarters and maybe the next year as to what the industry's going to do and, um, you know, how consumers are going to behave. So, we're, we're going to increase our payout. And that, more than anything, could be the sign that things are certainly back for the hospitality space. Definitely something to keep an eye on. So, Matt, we've we've talked about a lot of positives for you know for the travel industry, but the thing that worries me a little bit is this whole discretionary spending. Inflation has gotten really high. We don't know how long that's going to last. People probably have their plans booked for the next couple of months, but is there a long-term concern we need to think about? I think you could certainly see a situation where, if high inflation persists, consumers might start pulling back. I mean, gas prices are high. Airfares are rising, and as we talked about, the hotel rates are, are kind of at the highest they've ever been, certainly higher than they were in 2019. But I think, I think the demand story is still the real story here. I mean, it's demand that's really here. People have been waiting to make big travel plans uh, for over two years now. And I, I think there's a little bit of misconception about the inflation and the impact it's going to have on consumer spending. I mean, there's there's these big kind of clickbaity headlines, right? It's something, it'll say something like, well, if your job didn't give you a 6% raise this year, then you got a pay cut and you're, you're poor, you're worse off. And th- that might be true to a small extent, but I think it, it doesn't exactly work that way. And I think to use an example, uh, what I like to say, I mean, this is going to be pretty simple, but imagine a household that takes home $100,000 a year. And to keep things simple, let's say their expenses are 50000 And let's say inflation got even worse. Let's say inflation was 10%, which would really be painful. Okay, so that means their expenses have gone up 5,000. So now instead of 50,000, their expenses are 55,000. But let's pretend that, you know, maybe they didn't get the 10% raise, but they got a 5% raise. So that seems reasonable. So well then that means they're taking home uh, their take-home pay went up by 5,000 as well. They're taking home 105,000. So their expenses are actually are actually covered even though you know they didn't get the 10% raise because generally people are making more than they're they're uh, you know having to spend to maintain their standard of living. I know that's oversimplifying things, but I think inflation is not really the killer app for the economy and people spending. Um, I think it's really demand. Demand is really what drives consumer spending and behaviors and I think with the travel industry we've had we've had such a uh, a two-year period where there's People haven't been able to spend on travel, haven't been able to see loved ones or hold events uh, like weddings uh, and other things. And, and now they finally can. And I think that kind of overwhelms the idea of, well, things are a little expensive, so I'm, I'm going to hold off even more on going traveling, even though I've been waiting two years because things have gotten a little expensive. I think those kind of expenses are easy to justify when people have been waiting so long to, to do them. 
Well, I think that the interesting thing about looking at inflation from the hospitality industry is that you've got the ability to raise rates very quickly. You're not. This is a type of real estate where you're not locked into long leases or anything like that because it's night by night. But the, but then it becomes a question of pricing power, and you know, really those distinctive experiences start to come into play because if you're going to be spending money for a hotel room and an, you really want that experience level, uh, you want to make it count, and so I. I think it does become a question of what are you paying for and is it worth the spend? That's such a such a great point, teacher. Right, hotels, you know, it's your lease. It, you've got one one day leases, especially basically with your tenants, and you can adjust prices pretty quickly on the fly. But how can you maintain those prices? And to your point, the the companies and the resorts that have those destinations that people want to go to, the Ryman Hospitalities, the Vail Resorts, the Pebblebrooks with their you know resorts in Florida and California, where people want to go and want to be, they're willing to pay a premium for that. And so I feel like those companies can maintain their pricing power. Your traditional hospitality or hotel rate that owns, you know, maybe your, you know, your average mid-scale hotel uh, in in outside of cities, probably not going to have as much pricing power as those with. The destinations and the the leisure focus that I think is really leading this revival that we're seeing so far in 2022, and will probably be able to maintain its pricing power for the remainder of the year. Thank you so much. Thank you, Deidre. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.